This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design invests in building and teaching designers using the best tools for the job. I asked design program manager Sylvie Singh what she has learned about design since working at Facebook. I feel like the best things that are created through design at Facebook is through collaboration. The diverse backgrounds of our designers really, really shape the quality of our products and features. And I've never worked with teams that have such versatile skills and are so well-rounded. That's what I've learned most at Facebook is the best things are created through um, collaboration at the intersection of a lot of different opinions. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Halo Group is looking for an Atlanta-based JavaScript developer. And Buffer is looking for an engineering manager. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I'm proud to announce that Revision Path is sponsoring the 2017 Black in Design Conference. This event takes place October 6th through the 8th at Harvard University Graduate School of Design. And the theme for this year's event is Designing Resistance, Building Coalitions. Early bird tickets are sold out, but general admission tickets are still available. I'll put a link in the show notes. Now let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. MailChimp gives you the marketing tools you need to be yourself on a bigger stage. So whether that's big business or freelance work, you can join more than 15 million people who use MailChimp to grow their businesses on their own terms. And with integrated Facebook and Instagram advertising, you can find new customers and reconnect with others. Just recently, MailChimp now has integrated your automations with your campaign, so it makes it super simple now to follow up, to get more money from sales, things like that. You really should check it out. Sign up for a free account today at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. When you have a great idea for a project, you need to give it a great domain name. And guess what? Finding the perfect domain name is ridiculously easy with Hover. You know what else Hover makes easy? Setting up your new domain with the most popular website builders out there. Just use their Hover Connect feature to set up your domain automatically in only a few clicks. No more digging through help articles to find out how to get that domain working. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's hover.com forward slash revision path. Hover, domain names for your ideas. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for professional, business, or enterprise projects. So whether you're building something custom or you're using a CMS like WordPress, SiteGround lets you build better, faster, safer websites more easily, and they offer multiple hosting options that your websites can grow into. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path to get 60% off on all hosting plans. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to Hans Dorsenville, Partner Executive Vice President and Senior Group Creative Director at Laird & Partners. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. So my name's Hans Dorsenville, and I'm Senior Vice President and Group Creative Director at Laird & Partners, which is a branding agency in New York City. And we do basically stuff for luxury clients and fashion and mainstream clients and everything in between. Walk me through what a typical day is like for you at Laird and Partners. I mean, I figure you're at, you know, such a, a high senior level. Kind of talk us through what you do from day to day. Every day is different. That's what's interesting about my job. I think I, I wake up in the morning and I do have a plan for the day, but usually that plan gets disrupted at some point during the day. And I think that's the nature of this industry and it's the nature of creativity that you have to be able to kind of turn on a dime and be able to 
how to figure out, you know, how to solve problems quickly in creative ways. So my day on paper usually looks like a lot of creative touch bases with teams, with creative teams. So because I work on a lot of different accounts, I need to give attention to each one of those accounts. So part of the day is that. Part of the day is possibly going down to an edit suite and working on video or film. Another part of the day could be I have to go to a shoot to supervise part of the part of the creative process over there. Part of it is obviously meeting with clients, so making presentations to them, selling ideas or getting briefed by them so that I understand what we're trying to achieve, who we're trying to reach, getting to understand their business. Because I think the big thing with you know being a creative is that there's also a business side. I think what we do is at the end of the day, find creative ways to be able to sell a product or sell an idea or sell a point of view. But you have to understand the business side and you know we're not successful if we don't actually sell the product. So that's part of the day. Um, and then a lot of it is also just kind of collaborating, you know, collaborating with creative people. So whether it's, you know, designers, writers, videographers, a lot of time is spent uh, just talking and coming up with ideas and sharing ideas to make a better end product. Because I think a lot of what you do in creativity, in creative fields, is is not a set kind of formula. You know what I mean? The creativity, I think, doesn't go away. It's like all the time, what you do, what you hear, what you eat, what you hear, when you touch, everything is basically kind of gets filed into, you know, this file cabinet in your head. And then you draw on that to be able to find the right, you know, the, for the right thing and at the right moment to be able to marry that with some kind of a message. So what's great is everybody's got a lot of experiences. And when you bring those experiences together, then I think you end up with a much better product. So yeah, so the day has predictable sides and really unpredictable sides. And and that's what's fun about it because I never wanted to have a job where I would go in at nine and leave at five and know exactly what I was going to do every single day. So I like the unpredictability of it. I'm glad you mentioned that there is this business side also to what you do. Uh, we've had guests on in the past, I think most notably Douglas Davis, who also is in New York, but he's also, he actually has written a book about kind of the business and strategy of design and why that's an important component with the work that you do. And, you know, especially with what you're doing at your level and to the, the clientele that you have, it has to be more about selling the product or selling kind of this aspirational product. So you have to know that business side behind just the creativity of what you're doing. Yeah. And I think also now, you know, with, with all of the data that you have through all of the, you know, the digital aspects of everything, and you can really measure success in, in a almost, you know, I mean, right away, basically, you know, if something is catching fire or not. I think that's really interesting because then you always have to kind of adjust things because it's not about anymore. Oh, you have one idea, you kind of put it out there and hope for the best and then see you again next season kind of thing. It really is like, okay, well, let's have, let's have a a solid strategy beforehand. We don't even really start creative work until we've got the strategy very clearly established, you know? And then after that is when we try to really find the right insights to play into and then from then on, you find the creative expression of it. So creativity really has to do with, with messaging and how you reach an audience in a clever way or in a way that really resonates mm-hmm. with them. And that I think has a lot of truth behind it. Because I think the more you understand people, the more you understand what it is that they're going to respond to and what they want to hear. And then you question of marrying the right brand that has the right purpose to the right people that can deliver that message and then sending that message to the right audience. So I think things have changed a lot and now you can do that with all these analytics and and all the information that you have that we can pinpoint also, you know, how you want to deliver your message because it's not about, oh, I'm just going to do a print ad somewhere. That doesn't really work anymore. So it can be part of the mix, but it's not the whole equation. Do you find that that's something new that's come across with the work that you're doing? Or is this something that has been present for a while now? 
Well, I mean, it's been present, but the fashion industry, you know, sometimes is a little late to the party because I think it's an industry that's been around for a long time that has done stuff a certain way for a long time. And it's always been, okay, there's two collections a year. Then it became kind of four collections. So there were more of them, but ultimately the two main ones of spring, summer and fall, winter were the important ones. You would do an advertising campaign. You would choose a photographer, you'd choose a model, you could choose a location, you could go and do that. And then basically you had some imagery that you would put up in a store. You would put up, obviously you put in magazines and you'd put some outdoor advertising maybe. So it was fairly straightforward. But then it all changed because once you had a new medium, you kind of had to think differently because that medium originally when people started using stuff like Facebook and Instagram, you know, it was just brands were just putting pictures up on there, but they were using the pictures that were the ad campaign pictures that they had shot because they had the assets. But then nobody was interested in seeing that because they had already seen it in a magazine. So the duplication wasn't interesting. So it was all about, okay, well, what are you going to tell me on each one of the mediums that is actually what the medium is made for. That's why I think fashion had to kind of be okay with opening the doors and lifting the curtain and starting to show a little bit more of the inner workings and the behind the scenes and how things actually happen and get made. And and I think it that took a little while to happen, and especially on the luxury level, because I think you had, you know, big kind of big designers, big houses that didn't really want to be that open and that mm-hmm. transparent. But then I think people understood that there was really no other way because we were in a different time and people were just as interested in the how you got there as much as what it ended up looking like. And then I think the whole idea of having influencers was also something that took a while for the fashion industry because like the designers were the influencers before, but now all of a sudden the designers have to say, okay, I need other people to really promote my product and those are the people who actually are the new publishers because the magazines reach much fewer people than some of the influencers and so once those influencers post something it becomes much more effective than just running a page in a magazine so all that really started to kind of give us new ways to seed a message or to just talk to an audience And then part of that became, okay, well, let's let the audience participate now because it wasn't just about brands kind of dictating to people. It was about starting a conversation. And then in order to start a conversation, you really had to think about what's a platform, like what's your subject matter? What is it that you as a brand believe in? And you're going to let your audience know that so that they want to follow you, follow you in an actual way. But I, I think also psychologically, you know what I mean? That they have the same shared values with you. So our job became much more than just taking a picture. It really became like, how do you find that platform? How do you find what resonates with the audience? And then how do you find the people to tell the message in a creative way? Now, how did you first get started in this business? I mean, I know you've had a, and we'll go into this, you know, you've had a long storied career, but how did you first get started? I was lucky. I went to Parsons, School of Design, which is an amazing school. Obviously, I mean, I'm from Canada, from Montreal more specifically. So I, and it's funny because in, in Montreal, there are actually very few real kind of design schools mm-hmm. and all that. So, you know, I looked to New York because my dad actually had studied here at City College and my grandparents used to live here also. And so I knew New York. I had been coming to New York since I was a, a little kid and always loved the city. And I thought, okay, well, that's kind of the best place to go to study this. So I went to Parsons and funny enough, I actually wasn't really going to come into this industry in the way that I did because while I was in school, you know, the last year, your senior year, you had to do an internship. And I did an internship in this company that was called M and Company, which was basically like a design firm, but they didn't do fashion. But I did the internship there. I really loved it. It cemented kind of my desire to be in this communications industry, because I think that's ultimately what we do, right? We communicate ideas and help to kind of change minds or make people realize things or want things. And so I was going to do that. I had the internship and it was ending. I was going to go on vacation during the summer and then start in September. So I went on vacation. I came back. And then when I got back, I had to listen to a message from my boss 
on my answering machine, the then answering machines, which were, you know, cassette tapes. So I had a lot of different messages, but one of them was him telling me, oh, I've got bad news and good news. The good news is I've got this great opportunity. I'm moving to Italy and I'm going to work for Benetton and the magazine Mm -hmm. Colors. And the bad news is you don't have a job. So, (laughs) So then luckily... It was interesting because, you know, they always say don't burn any bridges. And it's true because I had a friend of mine that was at school with me that had gotten a job and she had the next message, actually, funny enough, literally right after his that said, I'm at work. I'm there's so much work here. I need help. And I, I trust you. I feel like you could really help me here. Give me a call. Let's see what we can do. So I called her and she she basically said, can you come in? on Monday and I started working with her. So we were working at Donna Karen, who, you know, at that time there was 1993, but 1993, and it was very much like the, it's a big moment. You know, Donna was one of those women that had really kind of changed the face of fashion for women. And so she had a brand, she actually had two brands because she had Donna Karen and which was the upper tier. And then she had Donna DKNY, which was kind of the more bridge line. That And so basically started working there and I had no idea that what I was going to do there because I had never even worked in fashion. And the truth was that I, I did always love fashion. And what I found interesting about fashion was always the fact that it was kind of like this interesting industry that was part of culture in a way. You know, it reflected mm-hmm. the times. It was always something that borrowed from a lot of different areas, whether it be, you know, film, theater, the streets, I mean, the music, everything. So I thought, you know, this could be interesting to be in this industry, not knowing a lot about it, but certainly knowing that it was creative and that I knew I wanted to be in a place where you were valued for ideas that you had and for the the kind of interesting, creative, artistic execution of what you were doing. So that's, that's where it all started. I have this feeling that the New York during that time and like the early to mid nineties, maybe all throughout the nineties, probably is just like this, this hotbed of culture and creativity. I mean, I'm, I'm from rural Alabama and my first, I guess, exposure to New York, ironically enough, was on television. It was through the real world, the first season of the real world and seeing, you know, like these diverse individuals and they're in the city, but like more so than just who they were was like the city was its own character, like all these different neighborhoods and cultures and fashion and, and everything like that. What do you really remember from that time? Like what sticks out to you the most? I think freedom. It was a time I think where freedom of expression and creativity and uniqueness were really the things that were valued. I think people didn't, you know, it was much less corporate at the time. Nothing was, was as business oriented as it is now. And I think the club scene was, was a place that really, I think people, especially fashion drew so much inspiration from, because that was the place where people could go and be free to be themselves. Uh, So whether it be, you know, I mean, artists, club kids, what, like all walks of life would find themselves in these clubs and they could just do what they kind of wanted to do. They could dress the way they wanted to dress. And so it was very freeing and I think very inspiring for, you know, a young kid, especially from Canada, because I had never seen all of that. And I had missed, you know, the, the whole kind of Studio 54 thing, and which I really wish I would have been around <laughs> for. So at the time where, where I was here, it was really like places like Club USA or Palladium or this place Mars or Pyramid and like all these places that ultimately, you know, New York was, an, I think, a night town. You know, the stuff that happened basically after sundown was the stuff that was the most kind of creative and people would get together and just kind of share ideas. And, and whether you were, you know, again, a, a writer or you were, uh, even if you were somebody in a business job, like everybody co-mingled. That's the other thing I think was interesting about that time, because you'd go to a place where you would have everything from a banker with a ton of, a ton of money to, you know, a kid that had no money at all, but was super creative and everybody lived kind of this parallel life. 
And I think now it's very different because it's like all of that got segmented. So it's like certain people go certain places and there's not as much of a mix. And I think when you don't mix things, then things I think don't evolve mm -hmm. as much. You know what I mean? Because then you don't get new perspectives and you don't get, I think, a you don't question yeah. things, you know what I mean? Because yeah. you're kind of stuck in this bubble and everything is as it should be and then nothing disrupts it. And so I feel like New York in that sense has, has become very safe. And so you have to look a lot harder to be able to find these kind of creative people and where they go and what they do and where they find themselves together. But then it's a bunch of creative people together. So then there's also no influence from the outside mm -hmm. from that. So I, I think it was a really special time. And I think, you know, freedom of expression is definitely, I think, one of the, the things that I remember the most and that I could draw from for. And at the time I was at school, you know, when I started and all that, but even for the work I was doing at school, it was very, very much something that was related to what was happening around now me. that part you mentioned about you know kind of the co-mingling and how now that separation has changed things i feel like that's a good analogy to what really the creative and i guess the advertising industry in a way is sort of happening now you know there's all this talk about diversity in the industry and we know the the positive benefits of it it's sort of like what you said you had you have different ideas that are coming together and you're learning and being inspired from each other but yet I guess what's happening now is, uh, I guess, the reverse of that. Yeah, well, and, and it's funny because it's, it's ironic when you think about it because at, at the end of the day, there's an audience out there. And the audience is comprised of every race, every gender, everything. And so, you know, you need people who can represent that. So to me, I, I never understood why it was that we were so underrepresented in the, the creative industry itself because ultimately it's, it's like you – you can't work somewhere and be able to try to communicate messages to people when the people don't reflect, you know, what it is that's out there. It's like we say now, I mean, you know, the administration that we have right now, you know, under Trump and all that doesn't exactly represent the mm -hmm. country. And so it's the same thing, I think, in, in these industries. And, and I actually, you know, I don't even know why it's like that exactly. And I always say what's interesting to me is, you know, I grew up in Canada in Montreal more specifically, and Montreal, and had like a very kind of diverse group of friends and, and all that. And, and, you know, I think it's very different being black in Canada than it is being black in the U.S. And so it's honestly easier over there because there's, there's not all of the past is, is just different. And so here there's there's years and years and years of baggage that's there that you know makes it really hard for people to be able to accept us you know what i mean in certain positions and accept us in certain roles and and all of that whereas in canada that doesn't really exist in that way and so it's funny because a friend of mine this woman samira who's actually also in the fashion industry she she works for um l magazine she's the editor of l magazine and she and I, you know, when we both moved here, we were both saying, you know, what's interesting is that I think we moved here never thinking that we were an invited to the party. Hmm. You know, and for us, it's like we just came here. We thought, OK, well, we have to work hard, obviously, like anybody would, because there's so many people that are here. There's so much competition and there's people from everywhere and you just have to work and you have to prove yourself. So but we weren't proving ourselves because we were black. We were proving ourselves because we just thought you had to prove yourself and prove your worth as far as a creative person. And so, you know, it's, it's a little later when we kind of realized you were in a job and you were looking around, even in school, I have to say, I was one of three black people in the school. I mean, basically, I'd say mm, probably 60% of the other students were Asian. Hmm. So it was a huge, huge Asian contingency. And then you had like a little bit of Latino, but very, very few and then mostly white and then, you know, me and two other guys. And so even at school, I felt it. And, and then it's like you get out in the workforce and literally you're in, you're in these, these meetings with people and you're like, oh, my God, yeah, I'm, I'm like the only black person here. What, what's going on? And then once in a while, what was great is like actually at Donna, we had a quite diverse group of people that were working there, like at Donna Karen. And we were an in-house agency at the time. So I certainly didn't feel alone over there as far as, as working for that company. But 
when we started this agency, Laird and Partners, and and basically our clients, we were looking at our clients, and you know everybody that was kind of at the at the top of the creative groups over there, it was pretty white, and so it's just interesting to to have to kind of adapt to the world that you're in, in the sense that you know you've got to kind of know who your audience is, who you're talking to, obviously, when you're talking to, you're trying to get an idea across, you're trying to get, you know, a, a good diverse cast in the work that you do also for these clients, because very often it's it's not even kind of talked about. And then it's a work in progress. But I think we've done, you know, good work and, and we've been able to kind of get everybody to realize that let's just, you know, let's just cast people. It doesn't matter exactly what they're, because it's not about filling a quota either, because I, I, I don't like that idea of like, oh, well, you know, there's got to be X amount of this race and that race. And it, it's just, you know, we just need people that represent what we're trying yeah. to say. And so it's not something that happened automatically at all. It doesn't happen automatically. You know, you, you have to work at it. And it's even hard because I, there was a time, and as you've probably heard, like I, where, you know, you would go to modeling agencies and it's like there just weren't that many black models mm-hmm. to choose from. So, you know, that's something that a woman like, I'm sure you've probably heard of Beth Ann yeah. Hardison. So Beth Ann has worked so hard, you know what I mean, all these years to really kind of get all of these agencies, these modeling agencies to have really a roster that mu- that's much more diverse. And, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, some seasons, all of a sudden it's like, you know, you look at the runway and there's, you know, a lot of black models and then some seasons all of a sudden there isn't, you know. So it's not even this thing where it like just changed and then everything's fine and we can stop having this conversation. It, it really is like every single day you, you have to keep pushing and keep pushing. And it gets better for sure, but it's, you know, it shouldn't even be a conversation anymore. It should just be that if I have a project and I have a client that wants a diverse group of people, it shouldn't be hard to find that. And yeah, so, you know, I think the industry has a lot of work to do still. And I think luckily with social media and all that, I think the the people that you can kind of tap into now are much more diverse because they're actually real people. So that's helped a lot. Speaking of that kind of diversity, one of the campaigns that you're most well known for, it's actually the campaign that I first heard about you from that was featured in Adweek's Creative 100, which congratulations, by the way, on that. The campaign was with Lane Bryant. Can you talk about that a little bit? It's interesting because so Lane Bryant is, you know, one of those brands that before we started working with them, I think was a brand that was successful. It was doing well. It was selling clothes, but it wasn't selling an idea. And so when we came in, it was really about talking about the fact that they had a responsibility towards the curvy woman, that they haven't really kind of been her outward champion in the sense that, yes, they were they were there to, to meet her clothing needs and to support her and all of that. But there was a kind of a bigger message at the time when we started the campaigns because the campaigns were really about creating one platform that then you could explore different parts of the journey with them. So the platform was really much about, you know, kind of body positivity. And then it was like, how can we talk about that? And so the first iteration of it was this thing that we called I'm No Angel. And I'm No Angel was very much this idea of like there was Victoria's Secret that was out there that was promoting the perfect body, which was, you know, kind of a size zero pretty much for a woman, which is quite unattainable. And so we came in with saying, you know what, we've got all these women out there that are not angels because that's what their, you know, their kind of trademark was and that deserve the, the same kind of recognition as those other women, they deserve to be on billboards, they deserve to look amazing, they deserve to be seen. And so it was very much about, well, let's give them a platform where they can actually respond and talk and say something about themselves. So that hashtag of I'm no angel was very much for them to be able to appropriate those words and then say something about themselves and feel proud about themselves. And the strategy was very much about, you know what, let's be disruptive and let's actually create imagery that, because there's still nothing more powerful than images, especially in this world today. It's like, you know, an image can really, really change 
I think, people's perceptions of things. And so we created this imagery of these women, and they looked amazing. They were in their underwear, and we put them up in really visible places. Like we put them, we wrapped literally a subway inside and out in New York City with all this imagery. There was like a, a huge billboard on uh, Sunset Boulevard. There were bus kiosks everywhere. People were confronted with that woman, and that hadn't happened before because nobody was walking around looking at the streets and looking up and seeing this woman. So that was really successful. And and I think, you know, we followed it up with a lot of different iterations of it. And it was very much about kind of giving a sense of what her experience is to the world. So it's like, you know, the, the second iteration iteration of it was this thing called Plus is Equal, which that was more about the fashion industry and geared towards them. So it was saying, you know what, plus size women are have want to have as much fun with fashion as any other woman. So, you know, being plus should be an, an equal experience to not being plus. And that had to do a lot with the fact that, you know, in, in the fashion industry, it's just something that designers don't kind of promote, even though they do do lines that are for plus size women, but it never gets talked about. And there's not enough of them that do it. And then it morphed into this other idea of this body. So this body was based on the idea that people think that because you have a certain type of body, there are things that you can't do. So we had done all this research and seen that there were these women that were plus size women that were doing everything from running marathons, doing ballet and yoga and, and doing all of this stuff that, you know, in people's minds are like, oh my God, how can you do that with that body? So it was very much about that. And then it went into another place where it was, there was a reality out there of that, the fact that these women were re, really being on social media and it was it was not a good thing and they had like these these shame moments that people would just write awful stuff about them so we decided you know what let's find a, a kind of creative way to address that and so it was a time also where we got more notable people to be in the campaign because now we had gotten some traction so we got Gabby Sidibe to be part of the campaign, which was great because, you know, she was having a great moment on Empire and she, I mean, she still is, but it was kind of the beginning of that. So, you know, cause she hadn't done anything big since mm -hmm. Precious. So it was a really great moment for her. And then we had Danielle Brooks also join the cast and she was doing the color purple at the time. And, and Orange is the New Black was, was really super popular and, and all that. So we just thought, okay, here are women who, who wanted to participate in the message and we wanted them to. And so they had a lot of influence. And, and so we basically decided to do this campaign where we were going to take real comments that people made on their feeds and basically gave them the opportunity to respond to those to those nasty comments in a positive way and kind of, you know, say, you know what, say what you want to say. I'm going to rise above it and I'm, I'm not going to let you dull my shine, basically. So that was really successful. So I think, again, it's like always finding kind of the what is the thing that we need to be talking about at that moment in time? What's happening in culture? Who are the people who are culturally relevant at this moment? And what's the message that we want to give? And then it's and then you work with collaborators to be able to make that message come alive in in a great way and be able to do it in a fashion way so that means there's a certain level of art direction of style and all that so it doesn't feel like oh it's just me taking a picture with my cell phone on on the street of somebody because that exists all day long that's what we look at all time all, all the time on social media but it's the elevated version of that now you've worked with some of the the top brands and top celebrities in the world you know just now you mentioned Gabby Sidibe, Danielle Brooks you worked at Donna Karen and of course Lane Bryant the brand you've even worked with yeah. Beyonce yeah what have you learned from working uh, with like big clients like this that it's really important to have a point of view and I think all of these women that I've worked with, Beyonce, even like, you know, I did projects with Halle Berry. They're all women who kind of come in and know what they're about and know what they want to say. And I help them to do that, you know, and do it in, in a creative, artistic way and all of that. But I admire all those women because they 
they just believe in something, you know what I mean? So whether it's a product that they're trying to promote or it's an idea or, or something, they believe in it enough to obviously put themselves out there. They're not just promoting something because somebody's paying them. They're actually promoting themselves. And that's what's different now, right? Because all these people, all these celebrities are brands now. They're not just spokespeople. Yeah. So they have their own products. They have their own understanding of what suits their brand. And so, you know, with Beyonce, it was it was a fragrance. It was actually a, a several fragrances that were done with her. But, you know, it's, it's a thing where she knows her customer. She knows exactly what is going to resonate with them, what it is about her that people want to see. And it's interesting because, you know, there's kind of the two sides to her, right? There's the Sasha Fierce kind of really on stage, really sexy, hot woman. And then there's the kind of the more subdued, more quiet woman that you see kind of off the stage. And interestingly enough, it, it like her fans care a lot more about Beyonce on stage. <laughs> like that's the sizzle. That's the thing that you know, they, they can't get enough of. And it's interesting because when we were working with her, you know, we were exploring both sides and, you know, she's the one who said, you know what, they, they, they want to see Beyonce. That's what they want to see. Like the, the woman that's on stage and especially fragrance, because, you know, very often fragrance, you want to be a little bit more kind of intimate and mm-hmm. all of that. And that's just not something people are interested in so much. So they wanted to see that in different areas, but they didn't want to see that as a fragrance. You know, they want to see that on Instagram and stuff like that. It's always interesting because, you know, all of these people, you kind of, you don't know them, you know, and so you have to start working with them. You have to get to know them very quickly and get to know what it is that makes them unique. And I think it's the same thing about brands. You know what I mean? It's like you just have to figure out and dig and see what it is that makes that brand unique, why it exists, why it was created in the first place, and what place it can have in the world of today. It's not really different. It's just one's, you know, a company and the other one's a person, but it's fairly the same approach. When you look back on your career, what are some of the most important lessons that you think you've learned? I think be true to yourself because I do think it's a, it's an industry full of individuality, full of individuals that all have different point of views, and you don't want to you don't want to be a me too. You you know you want to be your own unique person that has their own unique approach to things. I think be good to people because it's an industry also that everybody crosses over. And I said the thing about not. Cross, uh, not uh, burning any bridges and that is really important because you're going to encounter the same people over and over again and it's really important that you're known as somebody that's a you know a good person that's easy to work with and that's collaborative and that's creative and that's smart and that's get stuff done and then i think also you know i i've learned a lot about understanding customers because I've learned a lot about understanding people because customers are not any different than you and I. We're all customers. And so I think there's a a human truth that you can always kind of tap into because it doesn't matter whether you're 16 or you're 64. What matters is that there are certain things that people respond to. Obviously, you know, everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to find love. Everybody wants to be successful. Every, you know, all those things that are universal, that cross cultures and ages and all of that. Once you start understanding that, I think you can really hone in on messages for brands that are that are going to resonate. I think Lane Bryant again is a is a perfect example. It has you know it has nothing to do with just being a plus size woman. It has to do with being a woman and how you want to feel as a woman. So once you start understanding that, then you can really kind of target the message to 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 um, that kind of psychographic more than a demographic. And that's something that took a while to kind of understand because I think originally I always thought, oh well, you just try to promote a product and, and just tell people that this product is great and you need to get it. And that's really not what it's about. It's more now about, I understand you and I understand how you feel and, or how you want to feel. And so I've got something that can help you do that. 
so I think there's been this really big shift. So, I, uh, you know, and I'm still learning now because I think, you know, this whole new way of communicating, it's not like there's a roadmap for it or that there's a, a handbook for it, you know, and I think you have to keep staying just aware of what's going on culturally and what people are responding to and why they're responding to that. And what's great today is that there's so much crossover. You know, we were talking about before being surprising and, and all that. And the fact that you've got people like Jay, like Kanye and, and like Rihanna and people like that that have crossed over into the fashion industry and affected the fashion industry in such a big way they, they, you know, they're the influence now, you know, designers are looking to people like that. They're cultural mm -hmm. shifters, those people. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's so great to see that, that there are no more rules now, you know, and, and you can just, it goes back to that thing of individuality. If you've got a point of view and, you know, Kanye's got a really strong point of view when it comes to, to fashion and what he wants to say. And, and then you can mix it in with the message also, because I think part of fashion is, aesthetic obviously but part of it is is also very much reflective of of the times so so you can do that so it's it's evolution you know it keeps evolving and it's it's never ending and, and that's what i think is exciting about it but you have to stay on top of it i remember we had a piece on our blog this was i think last year about kind of celebrity creative directors and you're right like celebrities are starting to become established as brands themselves and then other brands, you know, whether it's luxury, consumer, et cetera, are kind of looking to them in some sort of collaboration. So like you have Rihanna with Puma, you have Solange, which is also with Puma. You've got like Nick yeah. Cannon or Alicia Keys or, or Lil Yachty or someone, you know, like you have these celebrities yeah. now that are kind of, like you say, crossing over. So it feels like that kind of, I don't know, that co-mingling that you mentioned earlier is sort of starting to happen, I guess, in a way, but it's at a, a different level than it was before. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's always happened in, in one way, shape or form, but now it's amplified just because of social media and the platforms are just so far reaching. And when you can, you know, easily reach 20, 30, 40 million people, because you've got that many followers, then, then you make an impact. So, you know, the impact was smaller before, but now it's huge and it's immediate. So I think, you know, these people know the power that they have, you know, people like Pharrell too. Mm -hmm. And, and I think there are people who love fashion. That's the thing. Cause it's not for everybody. I think you, you know, consumers know, you know, who are the people who do it in a way that's really authentic to them because they really believe it and really believe in the power of fashion and other people that are just kind of doing it because they want to make a buck. You know, I've always said that fashion is culture is fashion. They work hand in hand. And even for people who say, oh, I don't care about fashion. I mean, everybody cares about fashion because we all get dressed in the morning. <laughs> so, you know, if you didn't care about fashion, you you know, you, then you wouldn't buy clothes. But it's like you make a choice, right? I mean, whether you decide to wear, you know, jeans and T-shirt or you decide to wear sweatpants or dress pants or whatever right. it is. It's like you, you have to decide something and you decide that for a reason. And then you buy that specific, you know, sweatshirt or whatever because it means something and that's the power of fashion you know it's a, it represents something and it says something about you and to be able to work with brands that you know like you know we work with tommy hilfiger and tommy had a huge moment in the mm -hmm. 90s and you know the stuff with Aaliyah and with snoop dogg and what you know he, he became part of that culture and then you know, it all went kind of downhill from there and they made some bad decisions and said not such great yeah. things. And then it kind of like blew up in their face and, and then they had to shift completely and became kind of this different brand, you know, that was basically a preppy brand. And now what's interesting is you start seeing how they're they're having a moment. They're now being embraced again because it's been, I think, enough years to kind of put that behind and say, okay, there's kind of a, a, a new Tommy that is relevant today and is starting to seep into culture more. And you're starting to see people wear it out there without being paid to wear it yeah. or anything. So there's just these shifts that happen that you can't, you, you know, you, you, you can't control that. It just kind of happens, but you can see it and then you can kind of tap into it when it's happening because it's all about being at the right place at the right time with the right message at the end of the day. I remember that Tommy Hilfiger moment so <laughs> clearly. <laughs> like as soon as you mentioned that, that took me right back yeah. to like 
middle school and high school when, yeah, Tommy Hilfiger was a big deal. If you wore Tommy Hilfiger anything, you were automatically yeah. the most popular person. And then, yeah, he made some remarks or I think someone on his team had made some remarks about about black people. I don't remember specifically what it was, yeah. but I know it was enough to turn the tide where now it was kind of the opposite yeah. where it's like, oh, you're wearing Tommy Hilfiger. Like I think even when, uh, when Spike Lee did bamboozled, there's like a, there's a, yeah. a there's a skit in there, uh, that's similar to kind of, I guess the, the, the issue that was happening at the time around kind of not communicating well about the brand and the people that kind of made you popular. And I, and I think of other yeah. brands, you know, even luxury brands that have done similar things like, uh, like Cristal comes to mind. Yeah. When they were mentioning, I think it was something, I don't know. I, yeah. Again, I'm completely butchering. Yeah. I'm completely butchering the yeah. quotes, but it was around like, it's not a drink for rappers or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was that. But, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and really, I don't, I, I don't think that would happen anymore today. I, I, because I just think it was a time where I think for, for the Tommy thing specifically, you know, it, again, it wasn't planned that way. It wasn't like, oh, okay. They went out and they said, oh, we want to target a certain audience. It just yeah. happened. And so it just wasn't handled the right way. Instead of seeing that as an opportunity that just happened and, and just continuing with it, it just became that, oh, is that what we want the brand to be? And so that obviously that wasn't the thing to say because it's like, of course, you want that to be what you know, made it successful. It's working and all that. And I think brands now are so much more understanding of kind of, again, of culture of what's happening out there. And I think because really all the biggest influencers are black. I mean, yeah. and, and so it's like, it's very hard to deny us the, the rightful place that we have in society right now that we influence everything. And so I think brands have finally realized it and they're like, okay, well, th this is, this is how it works. You know what I mean? And so, so that's why to me, it's, a, you know, kind of going back to this industry specifically and being in advertising and all of that. And, you know, it's like you have to start. I feel like there's no role models out there. That's probably one of the reasons why I think if, if you're a black kid that's growing up and you're looking for inspiration, you're like, well, we who who's in this industry that I can I can think about? OK, well, I want to be like that, because I also think it's the kind of industry that you don't even know what you can do within this industry, because it, it is so far reaching and wide. And there's so many aspects yeah. to it from, you know, creative aspects, you know, that are in video and photography and art direction, all that to business aspects and, and everything in between. I mean, it is a legitimate, you know, business. And so, but I, I don't think you, people know about it. And so, you know, and, and it's interesting because even, you know, some of the most influential people in the industry, whether it be, you know, there's, there's this guy, Edward Enningfold, that used to work for this magazine called W Magazine. He's been appointed a couple of weeks ago as editor in chief of British Vogue, which is a huge deal. I mean, they they you know that magazine has always been run by English white women, and all of a sudden you've got this black guy that's coming in and and is going to run that magazine. Then you've got like you know the most influential makeup artist in in fashion is a woman, Pat McGrath, and so we are in this industry but we're not as visible as we need to be. And what's good is people like Edward and like Pat now have a platform because they have Instagram, they have all of that. So they can be more public and be seen and be and all that. And that makes such a huge difference. I think for, for kids that follow them, they're like, I want to be like her. I want to do, I want to be in that industry and, and all that. So, so I, I'm super excited to, to kind of see that because it's like it needs to happen at every level, whether it be photographers or, or stylists or hair, makeup, videographers, you know, merchandisers and fashion or whatever it is. You know, there's plenty of room for us and plenty of work for us. So. So, yeah, so we, we you know, we just need to groom the talent. And I think that's the most important part of, of what I know I can do for to be able to show that there is possibility. And it's hard because, you know, it's like, you know, I, let's say I interview in, in a year, I don't know, I interview maybe, you know, a hundred and some people in a year, probably out of all those candidates, there's maybe four black people and that's it. 
So it's like the ratio is so low that even of people that are even going into this industry or even trying to get into that industry, that that's the thing that's got to change. Because once we can change the people who make the messages and make the culture more visible, more seen, more all of that, we do that from the inside, then the better it's going to be. Because it's not about just asking people, oh, please represent us, please, you know, it's about us taking taking charge. Why do you think those numbers are so low? I think because there are no role models. I mean, it's like, you know, it's it's easy to think about, oh, I'll, I'm going to become, I'm going to go in the entertainment industry or I'm going to go into the sports industry because there, there are a lot of icons there. You know, we have people that you look up to that are public figures that everybody knows about. And that I think when you're a kid and you're looking at that, you're like, yeah, I can be like that. But in this industry, there are so few. There are so few black designers. There are so few, I mean, you know, anything. So it's like when it's not seen, I don't think you grow up thinking, okay, well, that's something for me. And then that's why I think it's so important that the very few of us that are here actually are known, seen, heard. That's why I think, you know, like a podcast like this is really important. And the more visibility we have, then the more inspiration we can bring to people. And then, you know, those numbers can start going up and then we can hire those people and then we can train those people. We can mentor those people. We can, all of that is part of the process to be able to just have our voice heard. Yeah. You can't be what you don't see. Exactly. Yeah. That's a very good quote. Who are your role models? I don't know that I have in this industry very specific role models i mean the per you know the i mean the person that i was working for this man tibor kalman at m and company when i was over there was certainly a big inspiration for me because he was one of those people that really was very accepting of everything he's the man actually was working on this magazine colors for benetton and benetton was kind of this amazing brand because it was that brand that you know, really believed in, in diversity and believed in, in culture and all that kind of stuff at the time. And that was, you know, in the early 90s. And so he was one of those people that would always kind of tell you that the way things are is not the way things need to be. And it was always about saying like, well, if you looked at it differently, what, what could it be? It gave you permission to do that. So that's like really, really important. In this industry. And then I think, you know, I feel maybe culturally, there are people that I think have given, I don't know, how, I mean, it's kind of given a, a light, yeah, to, to kind of go forward and all that. I feel like a lot of entertainers are people who inspire me. I think like messages that somebody like Alicia Keys puts out there, I think are super inspirational because I think she's that kind of woman that is not scared to, you know, she did this whole thing where, you know, now she's like, okay, I no makeup. This is me. This is, you know, I don't want to be part of kind of that whole machine. I really want to be kind of my own person and show my true beauty and my, my own voice and all that. And I think that's super inspirational. And then I think, you know, there are just people from the past, like, you know, Nina Simone, for example, is, is somebody that I think, again, is one of those pioneers, one of those people that just stood up for something and really made a difference, but could create beautiful music at the same time. I, I love the idea of creativity and, and message together. I think people like James Baldwin, you know, to be able to, to write the story and to write the struggle and to do it in a creative way, but have a voice that means something. You know, it's people like that to me that are, are always pushing the envelope that I think really inspire me. Now, a common question that we had from our Slack community as well as uh, from some people on Patreon, what advice would you give for a designer that wants to kind of take their career into this kind of direction of luxury and fashion? Do your homework, understand the history of brands like that, of luxury brands, and bring a fresh perspective to it. So I think believe that you've got something to contribute. You've got something to add to the story, but you understand the history 
and and the past because I think you know a lot of these luxury brands obviously have been around for a very long time, have had ups and downs, have had moments they were relevant and other moments where they weren't, have been able to survive because they've changed and evolved. And I think to me, it's just like any job that you're going to have, you have to do your homework. You have to know what you're walking into to be able to then talk intelligently about it and to be able to express what you feel could be new about it. If you don't know what they've done before, it's hard to come in and say, well, I think you should do this because they might have done that 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and maybe it didn't work or maybe it did or whatever. But you have to, to know, I think, a lot about it. Yeah, because as far as the customer is concerned, now I think, you know, the luxury customers ever is everybody. It used to be kind of a select few, and now it's everybody. Because I think even as a luxury level, there are products that are more accessible because all the brands are doing that because they're realizing they need to reach a younger target that doesn't have as much of the money but certainly has a lot of the influence. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that I think is, is important to luxuries I think has been democratized a little bit for everybody, but certainly has certain aspects of it. So yeah, so I'd say do your homework, really know what your who your audience is and bring you, you know, and bring you to the table and bring you to the party. What are you most excited about right now? Probably most excited about what stuff that hasn't been done yet. Do you know what I mean? Because I think things are moving so fast that it's not like there's going to be an end point to this. And I think everybody's trying to figure out, well, where, where's it all going? What are we doing? Like, when are we going to resolve and understand exactly how to do this job of, of, of branding and, and marketing and, and advertising and all that? There's no answer because, you know, in three months, it's going to be different than what it was three months ago. So that excites me to always stay fresh, stay on top of what's going on, observing what's going on and trying to find new ways to get messages across. I think technology is really exciting. And I think the, that, that merge of technology and fashion now is becoming more and more uh, prevalent. I think, you know, people like Will I Am, for example, is really working on, on kind of wearable technology and mixing those two things together. And that's exciting that there's all these these new tools that we're going to be able to use to be able to communicate the whole idea of VR is is great and you know there's a, there's a lot of stuff that's has yet to be perfected but is on the horizon and to be able to be part of the development of that and be like the first to 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 put it out there in a more elevated style with that lens of elevation in style is is really great so, yeah, so it's kind of the unknown that's exciting because when it's funny because when I think about what I was picturing for myself like 10, 15 years ago, I mean, I knew the world was changing, but I didn't know how fast and how much it was going to change. And so I just thought I'd kind of be doing what I was doing probably for many more years. And then it all shifted. And then all of a sudden it was a whole different thing. And so, you know, that was an unknown. And that made everything, I think it re-energized everything and it re-energized me certainly as a creative person to think even more creatively. And it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder today to come up with real ideas that you can make come to life in all these different mediums because it's, it's like you don't do the same thing. You know, earlier on I was talking about duplication. It's, it's not about duplicating an idea. It's about having the idea, but having different ways to, to talk about it. And so, and now it's fun also that you get to work with, you know, kind of more easy, nimble, quick, fast mediums where you just kind of create stuff, you know, on a phone or you create stuff through video, but very quickly. And then you've got stuff that's more high end too. So it's, it's opened up a lot of doors and be able to work with different talent that you couldn't really before. And, and it gives, I think, a lot of opportunities, especially for young people, to be able to, to participate in, in this industry because you're not looking only for kind of high-end photographer and all that. You're looking for young talent and also because they're the best ones to talk to the younger generation anyways. So you kind of want people to talk like peer-to-peer. -peer. Do you have a dream project that you'd love to do? 
I have several. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's funny because, you know, when you're in this industry, you, you kind of see it all around you because you see people dipping into creating, basically lending their eye or their style or their vision to a lot of different kinds of products, you know, from hotels to furniture to cars to this and that. And that's all stuff that I'm actually super interested in that I, I like tangible, physical things. So I, and I like experiences. Like I'd love to create this kind of, space where everything is in it is is kind of part of of my vision you know kind of thing and then i love film also and that's something that i've always wanted to do to do a film i haven't done it yet and you know i do feel like everything that i do as far as as commercials all that is certainly really good training to be able to do a film it's a lot shorter but it's you know it's that medium but that's something that i would love to one day get to do or or create the opportunity for myself to be able to tell a story through through that through that medium do you feel like you're satisfied creatively when you look back at your work and even like you said the okay like i said before every every day is different i never know exactly what i'm gonna do so that's exciting and then I think when you get to do projects like the Lane Bryant one, I think what's really satisfying, even on just a human level, is being able to affect people um, in a positive way and affect culture. Because that work is really work that ended up giving the opportunity for plus size models to end up like in Sports Illustrated or on the cover of Vogue or you know, Barbie created a plus size Barbie, all this stuff that culturally was influenced by the fact that I was able to create conversation around that subject matter that nobody wanted to talk about and do it in a disruptive but tasteful way. And then having women like literally write comments like, thank you so much for doing this because I walk around with my daughter and she sees these images and she can see herself and believes that she's worth being considered. And it's interesting because Danielle Brooks actually was at this seminar and she talked about when she had first seen the I'm No Angel campaign and she started crying when she was talking about it because she said, you know, she said, I was inundated with all of this imagery of these beautiful women and I had never seen that before. And she said, I, that day I walked around with my head up high because all of a sudden I was validated as a person and as a woman. And she said, what I perceived myself as changed. And that was really powerful. So I, I, I think, you know, the, the power of messaging and of communication is not something to be denied and and it can be used for great things and it can be used for bad things too but you know i think once you realize how much power you have there and how much you can influence people and change their minds or make them realize something it's great you know and i think we have a responsibility as marketers to be able to to do that and it's not you know you don't do that for every single project that you do but I think as much as you can, you should. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Probably still doing what I do, but doing it differently. In the sense that I think the the whole idea of the agency, the way that it is structured now, which is a fairly you know traditional way of working in an agency is going to morph. And then you already see it because now there are these different kind of agencies that are called kind of content agencies, which are agencies that really focus on creating that everyday content that brands have on their feeds. So there's already kind of an offshoot of the advertising agency that has appeared. And I think it's going to keep kind of changing. So I feel like I'll still be doing this, but I'll be doing it with obviously a new new set of tools, a new set of collaborators, and I think probably in a more nimble way, if you know what I mean, maybe less structured way, which I think is really exciting, you know, to be able to work on more projects quicker, get them out there, and then and then really kind of have more influence in a way. 
Well, Hans, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? I guess different places, definitely on the website of the agency, which is lairdandpartners.com. And obviously follow me on Instagram at H. Actually, no, my, you know, I should know this, right? My Instagram is my full <laughs> name, Hans Dorsenville. I made it simple so people would just know. And on Facebook also. So you can follow me, see me, and see the work. Sounds good. Well, Hans Dorsenville, thank you again so much for taking time to to come on the show. I think, you know, I was going to say, being able to, you know, really look back at the work that you've done, the work that you're currently doing, it certainly feels like you've earned the success that you've gotten. Not to say that other people that haven't, haven't earned their success, but sort of like you said, you know, not having those role models or people to really look up to has sort of helped fuel you along the way with a lot of the work that you've done. And I think, you know, just keep going. I mean, you're obviously doing well. You're at the top of your game right now. I'd love to see what you're going to be working on next. So thank you again for coming on the show. I mean, I just hope this really helps to kind of get everybody out there interested in the industry and the possibilities of it, because it's a great industry and we can be a big part of it a much bigger part of it than we are now. And so, you know, I, I mean, I'd love to hear from people and meet them and be able to help them also. So I'm just putting that out there. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Hans Dorsenville and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Hans and his work through the links in the show notes at provisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. Their mission is to make the world more open and connected, and they use design to create prototypes, shape experiences, and ultimately solve problems as well. Learn more about Facebook Design at facebook.com forward slash design. Whether you need to sell your products, share some big news, or just tell a story, MailChimp makes it easy to create campaigns that best suit your message. You know your business. Let MailChimp help you grow it. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Every great idea deserves a great domain name, and Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing domains. Hover offers free private domain registration, your choice of hundreds of domain extensions, and you can connect those domains to your favorite web service. Ready to get started? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Since 2004, SiteGround has been empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, faster, safer websites easily without having to worry about hosting. Visit siteground.com forward slash revision path and get 60% off on all hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. First, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and next, leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two, and it really helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings for a design podcast, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Visit us today at yepitslunch.com for all your design, strategy, and creative consulting needs. And if you like the work that we're doing here with Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. You know, now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you can get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.